0: This guy is evil, okay? Mugabe, or pick any despot, right? Any dictator who is so powerful that he hurts people or she hurts people. History's full of them, okay? This one in particular on my heart, only because I've seen him. Another one, either Malat or any serial killer that you fancy or any terrorist. These are the guys and girls who just destroy life and they're utterly evil, okay? Now, this one hasn't worked all day, so if it doesn't work at 6.30, I'm giving up, okay? This one is evil, right? Well, that's better than most, right? Like, if you're not sure who it is, ask someone else who's younger than you. Uh, Dr. Evil, Maleficent, or Thanos, that is where the uh, sci-fi world takes us, that that character, uh, he, I think is the epitome of evil. Where does your mind go when you think of the word evil? That's our big question for tonight. And our answer is not going to be out there. Mugabe, Ivan Malat, they are genuinely evil, and we should go there. But tonight, the Bible's bringing it much closer. Actually, it's bringing us right to ourselves. And we're in a very heavy part of the Bible tonight. It's hard. And everything in your 21st century shaped brains is going to say to this Bible passage, no, it's not true. I don't like it. But I want to encourage you tonight is hold on. Go on the journey with God. There is no Disney ending to this sermon. Okay? Okay? But there is really good news. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are with us tonight and you will speak through your word. In many ways, we don't want to hear what you're going to say tonight. So do your work to help us to listen wherever we are with you. We know that what you have to say is good. So speak to us tonight. In Jesus name. Amen. All right, Genesis, the book of Genesis, it teaches us about the nature and the character of God. We have seen Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 that God is good. He is majestic. He is powerful and he is just. But in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5, we've also seen the story of humanity. And the story of humanity tells us what humans are like, what you and me are like. Number one, we've seen that every single human being is made in the image of God. Every single one. There is no accidents in God's eyes. Every single one of you is handmade by God. You are made for a relationship with him and you are made for a relationship with people. Secondly, we've seen every single human is a sinner. A sinner is someone who rejects their creator and listens to a creature and most of us, we just listen to ourselves instead of God. And what we've seen in Genesis 3 to 5 is that sin starts with basically a disobeyed command and it moved to lying and murder and then revenge. And the third thing we've seen is that we all die. You are not immortal. Remember chapter 5? He died. 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 Death is like a doona over everything and everyone. And so from the very first Israelite that heard Moses say this stuff, all the way through to the 21st century today, Genesis is a mirror that when you look into Genesis, you see yourself. And you understand a very, very important question. Who am I? Your answer to the question, who am I, shapes your entire life. And so in our eight verses tonight, we're going to answer that question, who am I, with four points. Number one, we're going to look at a picture of utter evil. Point two, God's verdict on humanity. Number three, the good news. Number four, honesty. Point number one, a picture of utter evil. Genesis 6, the world is full of babies. Men and women are doing what they were told and filling the earth and hoping to subdue it. It's good, excuse me, it's good news. But then in in Genesis 6 verse 2, the story flips and there is a, a picture of utter evil. Put your finger on it. Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Here we witness a replay of Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3? The woman saw something good and she took it. Genesis, 5, Genesis 6 verse 3, 2. Sorry. The sons of God saw something they thought was good and they took it. Now, who are the sons of God? This is one of the most debated verses in the Bible. They could be mighty kings. So imagine mighty kings, beautiful women, just taking them and marrying them. The second option is, this could be the line of Cain, bad, with the line of Seth, good, marrying each other. The third option, and the one that I think is most likely, is that the sons of God are fallen angels. Weird. I know that it's weird. What we hear then is this is how the word sons of God is used in the Old Testament. So if you look in Genesis, you look in um, Job, and you look in Psalms, you'll see that's how it talks about angelic beings or fallen angelic beings. And then if you read 1 Peter and Jude in the New Testament, they talk about the flood and supernatural beings. And we don't really understand what's going on there, but they're bringing those two ideas together. So what we have here in Genesis is a marriage between and a fallen angel or demonic being somehow married to some women. And they're married. The parents have agreed. This is, there's no rape here. There's creatures of different kinds being married. Now, why would people do this? Why would the parents give their daughters to marry a fallen angel? Well, probably that in Genesis 5... That theme of death was there. So those parents probably thought, we'll marry our daughters off and maybe this is the way we can get eternal life. Our world, your world, would celebrate this type of marriage. It's a progressive marriage. God condemns it. See there in verse 3? It's not God's good design for marriage. And this evil marriage fails to achieve eternal life. All it did was create, in verse 4, the Nephilim. Don't know much about the Nephilim. What we know is that they were tall, angry, strong warriors, famous for causing pain on people. That's what they created. So God judges humanity in verse 3. He emphasizes their mortality, they are not eternal. And then he limits their life to 120 years to limit their evil. Okay? And that was implemented by the time of Jacob. So, point two God's verdict on humanity. Have a look at verse five. The Lord saw. Those three words mean basically God just stepped back and looked at everything going on. And so he considers the state of the entire world. And we're taken again back to Genesis 1. Have a look on the screen. Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. Verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw again how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. Can you see The fall from 131 to Genesis 6. And so, God in this verse is giving his verdict on humanity. He's saying evil is universal, absolute, internal, and constant. Universal. In this verse, he's not looking at the serial killers in particular, he's not looking at the dictators. What he's saying here is that this includes you. This includes me. This includes Noah. Now, some of you are pretty decent. You're like B plus, okay? There are some people in orange that are like, you know, an E, F or G, right? Like there, there is some despicable stuff in our city. But God absolutely recognizes the different types of evil. God doesn't go a lie and rape are the same. They're not. He sees the levels of evil. He hates evil, especially against vulnerable people. But the point here in verse 6, sorry verse 5, is that this applies to you and me and everyone. He's describing the whole of humanity. Number two, absolute. Our opposition to God and our obsession with sin permeates everything. Evil in our hearts is like contaminated water. You can't put a cup in and get water that doesn't have some contamination or polluted air. You can't breathe in a bit of air that isn't polluted if the air is polluted. Now, every time a sports person morally fails, think sandpaper gate, think a football person on the booze doing something dumb, happens all the time, they turn up on the media the next day. You know what they say? They shake their head, they cry a bit, and then they say, it wasn't me. That's not me. The real me is kind and good. That action I did wasn't me. You know what? The Bible fundamentally disagrees. And that is because our actions are driven from our hearts, the center or core of our being. And the poison of sin contaminates not our actions, but our hearts. Look what Jesus says. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile him. Now, please hear this. The point is not that human beings, Christian and non-Christian, don't do profoundly good, sacrificial and generous deeds towards others and the creation. You need to hear that. Those of you at school tomorrow morning, your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends will do good acts. Our friends out in the world will do good and not so good acts. And that's because we're all made in the image of God. But the point here in Genesis is that if you were to examine that act and the thought behind that act with the forensic eyes of God, we would see that there was something selfish, something corrupt, something prideful in all our best deeds and acts all the time. Because the heart of human is evil. Now, this is really hard to hear. It's really hard to hear. Is God exaggerating? He doesn't exaggerate. Is it applying to someone else? No. Actually, maybe it's just the Old Testament. The New Testament is so much easier, right? Jesus is progressive, he understands. Well, have a look what Jesus says. This is the verdict light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The truth is, humans love evil. And if you're a Christian tonight, you still, at times, love evil because you have the flesh of Adam. The truth is, actually, that our hearts deceive us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Deep down, we think we're okay, don't we? Deep down, we can go, I'm better than them, therefore I'm okay. And then we hear from the media and online, it's never your fault. It's God's fault. Someone else's fault. But the heart deceives us. Have a look at your heart. Do you remember that friendship that was ruined a few months ago by your jealousy? Maybe in your mind as you're online, love quickly turns to lust as you look at pornography. The constant pursuit of likes on Instagram or Snapchat so you can feel like a real human. The justification of telling a lie at school or at uni. The way you talk to someone down in Orange who's a nobody. You wouldn't do it here, but you're okay talking to them down there. The meanness you feel when you feel unappreciated. The desire to be flattered. The resentment of blame. Your self-confidence online as you post your opinions knowing you really don't have a clue what you're talking about. All of that is coming from in here. Actually, that's just the horizontal stuff. What about the vertical stuff? You know what God says? He says this. Don't have any gods but me. I'm your God. And then love me with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And our hearts say, no. No, not into that, God. I'm going to trust my feelings. I know best, God. I'll just go with that. You see, our hearts, they deceive us. And secondly, I think we've bought into the lie of human perfectibility. That's a big word. What we're saying here is we're living at the end of 250 years where the human race has thought we can keep advancing and getting better. No problems with that, right? The media and the experts now tell us in the 21st century... That if we have enough social constructs and we engineer politically our systems and we get enough financial help and education and technology, we can perfect humanity. If we can get our pronouns right, the world will be perfect. If we can get our relationships right, we can be perfect. The progressive voice you guys hear all the time on YouTube and online is utopian. It's promising something perfect. But can I tell you tonight, it's a dream. It's a destructive myth. It's not true. If you may have heard of this book, you may never have heard of this book. It's called The Lord of the Flies. Okay? And it's a, it's a really old book, actually. It's a horrific read. It's not fun. Okay? And The Lord of the Flies is a, basically a story where you gathered a bunch of blokes together. It doesn't start well, right? And then you stick them on an island. What could go wrong? And then the story is all about the blokes having to self-govern. It's terrible. It's atrocious. It's awful. Why would you write that story? Well, someone asked the author, William Golding, and here's what he said. Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man. That if a correct structure of society could produce goodwill and you could remove all social ills by a reorganisation of all society. After the war, I did not believe this anymore. I discovered what one human could do to another. I'm not talking about what man did when they killed each other with a gun or a bomb. I'm thinking of evil beyond words that went on. They were not done by criminals. They were done coldly by doctors, teachers, lawyers, farmers, trained men to beings of their own kind. Anyone who lived through those years without understanding that man produces evil like bees produce honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. I believe that man was sick, not exceptional man, but average man. And I believe that man is a morally diseased creation. And then he wrote Lord of the Flies. I could give you countless examples of books since then and movies since then with exactly the same thing. Because if you scratch beneath the surface of Netflix shows, you find humanity is deeply, deeply, deeply broken. And the gospel of human perfectibility is a false dream. See, the truth is this. The Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Tonight, I want you to know that this is true. This is true of the friend sitting next to you tonight outside of what God has done in them. And this is true of you, outside of what God has done in you. And you need to feel the weight of this. Because it weighs heavily on God's heart. Put your finger on verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. The true God is not apathetic to the mess we make of our hearts and the world. The true God is not a robotic dictator who just picks us up and just smashes us down. The true God is deeply troubled. Now that word there, deeply troubled, it means enraged. It's the same word is used when Dinah's brothers hear that she was raped. It's the same word Jonathan uses when he hears that Saul wants to murder David. It is being grieved to the core by the evil in humanity. And God's response is judgment. Because a good God always judges evil. And that's the point of the flood. We'll do this next week. The point of the flood is that the good God is against evil but it will not be the end next week because in verse 8 we see in noah there's a glimmer of hope so point 3 the good news as heavy and unpleasant as this passage is we need to hear it very clearly so we don't believe, so we don't live in a make believe world i think most young people are living in a make-believe world, refusing to hear the truth of what their hearts are like. Martin Luther says this, the human heart is like the stables on a man's farm. Now, if you've never been to a stable, it's a really unpleasant adventure, right? Just think toilet, okay? Pretending all is okay in a stable on the farm is not going to make it well. Sprinkling perfume around the farm is not going to make it well. What is needed is a great flood to wash things clean. That is what the blood of Christ is. You see, the incredible good news of Christianity is not God expects you to improve yourself. You can't. It is not that we can perfect humanity. God knows we can't. And it's not that God will ignore the evil in your heart. He won't. This is the good news of Christianity. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of Christianity is when you were evil at your core, enemies of God Jesus suffered the judgment for your evil and my evil. A judgment far worse than a flood. And please know this. His blood doesn't wash your outsides clean and make you nice people. Jesus' blood washes your insides clean. Every single evil thought that leads to all the evil actions, he washes it clean now and forever. Simon Manchester, a preacher in Sydney, says this, We don't sing amazing grace properly unless we understand the amazing disgrace of our hearts. We don't sing amazing grace properly unless we understand the amazing disgrace of our hearts. The cross is not a fairy tale. It is not a Disney moment. It is not where we just get to go, ha, everything's okay. No, no, no. The cross of Jesus is a horrific statement of love for evil humanity. So let's go back to our big question. Our big question was, who am I? The answer, as you go out into the dark tonight, will impact your entire week. Okay, it absolutely impacts everything you do this week. And for the next seven days, you and I, we're going to be told by the world an answer to this question. And the answer is this. Who am I? The world says, you're good. Be yourself. Trust your feelings. And if something goes wrong, blame someone. That's the world we live in. And do you know what type of world it creates? It creates the self-centred world we live in. Because when every single person thinks that they're good, and they're being themselves, and they're trusting their own feelings, and blaming others, you end up with our world. And actually, it's a destructive myth. It works in the media, it works on Netflix, but it is terrible, terrible to live. If you ever can get your friends to be honest about what life is like when they trust their feelings and have to prove themselves, it is a lonely, hopeless existence. God's answer to the question, who am I, it's much harder to hear, isn't it? We don't want to hear God's answer to the question. But when we do listen to it, it leads to freedom and life. Because what's God's answer, he says? Be honest. That's his answer. Look into your heart and be honest. Because when you do, like I do, I am not good. Sin poisons my heart and shapes every action, even my best ones, and I need help. And when you say those three words, I need help, at that very point, God abundantly gives you help. He gives you the forgiveness of Jesus. The only way to know yourself and the comfort of Jesus is through honesty. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you are so welcome. But I want to promise you that God has brought you here to answer the question, Who am I? And if you're having an honest moment right now and you're realising that your heart is evil and you need help, then you are in the perfect place because the person sitting next to you or two seats away will help you come face to face with your God tonight and become a Christian. They'll help you say sorry to God, bring your honesty to him and he will forgive you and you will be his forever. If you are a Christian, then know this, the Christian life is just a life of honesty. That is the Christian life. It's as simple as that. All we do is live honest lives. We're honest about our sins. We turn up to God like that tax collector in the temple. I love that parable. And we stand there and we beat our chest and go, I don't know why you love me, God. I confess all my sins to you, God. And I accept all your forgiveness. I'm honest. I'm honest about our good works. I want you to know if you're a Christian that you actually now have thoughts and actions that please God. That is amazing. And do you know how you can have thoughts and actions that please God? Because the Holy Spirit is living in you. He is doing a magnificent work in you Changing your thoughts and your hearts, which will lead to godly actions, and the Lord is really pleased with these people. But you never get to boast about it. You never get to say, Hey, I'm a pretty good Christian today. You can boast about the Holy Spirit's work in your heart because He is changing us into the likeness of Christ every day. We can be honest about our town. We are no better than every kid in your school year at school, guys or the university students, or your work colleagues, you are no better than them. You're simply someone who has had an honest moment by the grace of God and are now forgiven. Everyone is welcome in this church. We are honest about our limitations. We look within before we blame others. Because we know we bring an evil-shaped heart to every conversation, every fight, Every discussion. So we're slow to speak. Slow to become angry. And ultimately, we're just honest about ourselves. We look in the mirror every single morning and we remember Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace that I have been saved through faith. It's not from myself. It's a gift of God. Never by works, I can never boast. Our God sees our hearts, he sends Jesus, and by grace we are his.